Well, if you would like to go ahead and turn in your Bibles, uh, we're going to look today at uh, 1 Samuel chapter 16. Uh, here in just a few minutes, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 13, so you can hold your place there. We are continuing once again in the series that we've been in for several weeks. To date, I think that we spent five weeks on the life of Samuel, and then we spent two weeks on the life of Israel's first human king, Saul, and now we're shifting our focus to David. I think it's fair to say that other than Jesus Christ, there isn't a figure that cast a larger shadow over the entire Bible than King David. Uh, he is a central figure in the history of the nation of Israel, and he's a central figure in the unfolding of God's plan of salvation for mankind. I mean, think about it. If Jesus Christ is said to be the son of David, and you're David, uh, you know we're talking about a pretty important person. That's a pretty uh, big deal. More chapters in the Old Testament are spent on the life of David than any other Old Testament figure. And uh, many of you are probably familiar that many of the Psalms, much of uh, what we call the book of Psalms, is a song, are, are written by David. They are Psalms of David. Some of the most famous stories in the Bible are about David. We'll look at uh, one of them next week, which is the story of David and Goliath. And uh, another of the most famous stories in the Bible, David's relationship, his sinful relationship with Bathsheba. And we're going to be looking at that story during this series uh, as well. So we're shifting our attention to David today, just this incredibly important biblical figure. And again, I would say other than Christ himself, right up there at the very top of uh, the most uh, important and key figures within the Bible. You know, David is such an important figure in the Bible, such a, such a key character in the Bible, that we, we might be tempted to think of David as uh, the, the dedication, I guess, just had a horrible effect on, uh, we, are, we are sorry, Marcy. I hope oil didn't run down in her eyes or something. We're sorry. You know, David is such an important uh, figure in the Bible that we might be tempted to think of him as one of those people who just stands out above the rest from the very beginning of his life. Uh, you know, we might be tempted to think of him as that kid who, no matter what season of sport is, is currently in season, he always gets picked first. You know, if, if you're playing kickball, he's picked first. If, if it's backyard football, he's picked first. If it's playground basketball, he's picked first. You know, kind of like I was when I was a kid. Um, and not really. It was actually the exact opposite. Um, but whatever sport it is, he gets picked first. We might think of David uh, like that. We might think of David as, you know, the kid who in high school gets selected for the yearbook as most likely to succeed. Um, uh, something else that I did not attain. Um, actually, I'm not even in my senior yearbook. Um, we, we, would, uh, we would understandably think of David as the apple of his father's eye, the child who more than any other child of his father is identified by the dad as someone who has potential for future success. 
as we know the, the history of David's life and how it turned out, it would be understandable for us to think all of those things about him. But of course, none of those things were true for David. David's story does not begin with him standing out above all the others as exceptional. David's story does not begin with him being picked first. His story does not begin with his father recognizing incredible potential in him. David's story does not begin with a silver spoon in his mouth. David's story begins in a very different way than any of that. Uh, What I want to do today is read through the 16th chapter of 1 Samuel. I'm going to read it. I'm going to ask you to follow along as I do. And as we read the chapter and as I share this message, uh, I feel like uh, many of us here today who maybe in our lives have felt overlooked, have felt underappreciated, have uh, felt kind of like uh, those who get picked last instead of first, Uh, Those of us who identify with never having been chosen as the most likely to succeed, uh, I think that we're uh, in, that we need to pay attention today, that if if that describes you, that this uh, message might have something special for you. And I think all of us who have ever looked at another person and, and written them off in some way, written them off as lacking potential, not being up to the task, really not having a lot to offer that we should all take note as well. Because this chapter of the Bible highlights a theme that runs throughout Scripture, and that is that God likes to take those who others dismiss, those who others overlook, those who seem the least likely to be successful. God seems to take pleasure in taking those kind of people and working through them in really significant ways. And so let's all, uh, if if you find yourself anywhere in that, uh, I think this message is uh, for you. And by the way, before we get into the text, I just have to say that I am freezing to death. And usually when I am freezing to death, you are freezing to death, because I almost never freeze to death, at least when I'm up here. So if we could, uh, it's the top, top button says heat. Just up arrow for higher heat. Got it. All right. Very good. I'm not going to ask who's cold and who's not because that's just a recipe for arguing. All right. Chapter 16. By the way, I'm reading from the ESV, English Standard Version of the Bible today. So if you have your uh, standard NIV, standard issue NIV, Uh, For the vineyard, I apologize for any uh, discrepancies. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite. For I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord and invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, do you come peaceably? And he said, peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. 
Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. So we start the chapter with Samuel grieving over the rejected king, Saul. And God says to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Now, we, we can only really kind of guess what God's tone is here, and I might be guessing wrong, but, but I get the feeling that God is kind of ready for Samuel to stop with the grieving over Saul. He's kind of saying, you know what, Samuel, Saul's been rejected. I have a new king for you to anoint. Just deal with it and go do what I'm asking you to do. I think that's kind of the tone that, that God has here. And so Saul has been rejected and God is sending Samuel to the house of Jesse because one of Jesse's sons is going to be the new king of Israel. And what we see very quickly in this story is that rather than being the one always picked first, rather than being preferred, rather than standing out above all of the others, Instead of any of that, David is actually considered the least likely candidate from among Jesse's sons. In fact, it actually goes beyond, considered, uh, beyond being considered least likely. David is not considered at all. He's not thought of at all. Samuel quickly sees the oldest son, Eliab, and thinks to himself, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Surely this... This young man that I'm looking at is the Lord's anointed. And we know from the Lord's response to Samuel that Samuel had probably come to this conclusion based on Eliab's appearance, based on Eliab's height. I mean, Eliab looked like a king from Samuel's perspective. He, he looked like a king. He was, you might say, the Mitt Romney of Jesse's sons. He just looked like a king. Now, you have to admit, whether you were pro Mitt Romney or against Mitt Romney, that is the most presidential-looking man that will never be president. You have to admit that, no matter what you, what you thought. Eliab just looked like a king. But Eliab was not 
God's choice. Then Jesse brings Abinadab before Samuel, and he's not the choice either. So Shammah is brought in for consideration, and he's not the choice. And then Jesse brings in a total of seven sons before Samuel, and none of them are the choice. And there's nobody still waiting to be brought in. And so Samuel asks a question. Are all your sons here? Now we are approaching a bit of a a crisis here. God has said one of the sons of Jesse is going to be king. What appears to be all of the sons have now been brought in. And all of them have been rejected. Nobody else is standing around for consideration. We don't have a king. I want you to think about Jesse's response. It is very telling. Are all your sons here? There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. Realize what this means. Samuel invited Jesse and his sons, all of his sons, to be present. And Jesse doesn't even bother having David there. In Jesse's mind, there is no chance that David could be the one that Samuel is here for. Not only is he the least likely, as I've titled the message, but he's not given any consideration. Jesse has entirely ignored David. And we have a hint to why when Jesse I believe dismissively says, there remains yet the youngest. Being the youngest made David very insignificant in a culture where birth order was a really big deal. And it gets worse. Even when Samuel questions if there are other sons and Jesse acknowledges that there is another son, he still does not seem to me, to my reading of it, he doesn't seem to offer to bring the boy in. He simply says, well, yes, I have another one, but he's keeping the sheep. There's no, would you like me to go get him? There's just no, I have another one, but he's with the sheep. It's almost as if we can hear or at least imagine Jesse's thoughts. What's going on here is too important for the son who keeps the sheep. He has no experience with the kind of things that you're going to need your chosen one to have experience with. So we see very clearly there is no silver spoon in David's mouth. He is not the most likely to succeed, at least not according to his own father, the person who likely knew him best. Sure, the Bible says he's good-looking and handsome, but that only gets you so far. He's too young. He's too inexperienced. He's too insignificant. The least likely candidate for the job has been, and he's been entirely overlooked. Some of us here today, I know, can relate to that. We, we feel that way. We feel too young for something. Maybe we feel too old. Maybe we feel too inexperienced. Maybe we feel that we have too much of the wrong kind of experience. We don't have enough Bible knowledge. We have too many mistakes in our past. For a whole variety of reasons, we can get to the place where we feel like the least likely candidate. Maybe even to do something that we're convinced God has called us to do, but we just don't feel like we're the right person to do it. And so there's this confusion. 
We think we're supposed to. But, but we just feel for some reason that we're not the likely person to do it. David was too young, too inexperienced, and too insignificant to even be considered by his father. And yet Samuel says, sin for him, we will not sit down until he arrives. David arrives on the scene. The Lord tells Samuel, rise and anoint him. He is the one. Samuel obeys the Lord, and David is anointed king. Too young too inexperienced, too insignificant, but chosen by God. God chose David the least likely to be king. Verse 1 of chapter 16 uh, ends with God telling Samuel this, I have provided for myself a king from among Jesse's sons. Now, I chose the ESV today in part because it's a better translation of that verse that I just read. The NIV simply says, I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But the NIV is weak there, and the ESV does a better job. The better translation is, I have provided for myself a king from among his sons. Now, we saw in the story of Saul that God did choose Saul. But he chose Saul in a way that intentionally met the demands, the expectations of the people. Basically, in choosing Saul, God gave the people what they had been clamoring for. But now with David, it's something different. God says, I've chosen for myself a king. I'm not choosing for you anymore. I'm choosing for myself. Saul was the people's choice, and we know how that turned out. David is God's choice. God chose David the least likely. Now, why would God pass up on the more experienced older brothers? Why would God reject the most obvious choices by the way human reasoning approaches it and pick the least likely candidate? Why would God do that? It is because God has superior eyesight to any of us. He sees better than us. God sees things that we overlook. He saw things in Eliab that Samuel could not see because Samuel was too impressed with Eliab's outward appearance. And he saw things in David that others couldn't see because others could not see past his youth and inexperience. They couldn't see past his low position in the family birth order. The the key verse of this entire chapter is verse 7. It's really one of the more famous verses in the Bible. It says, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. And here's the part that's really famous. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. The reason the people had had wanted Saul as king, the reason people liked Saul as king is because he looked the part in the way that we evaluate one another. 
The reason that Samuel, great prophet though he was, thought Eliab was the Lord's choice is because even great prophets don't see people like God sees people. Even great prophets sometimes get enamored by the wrong things. And you can't entirely blame people. I mean, we, we can't see like God sees. All we can do is go by what we're able to see, what we can witness with our eyes. Sure, we are able to spiritually discern things about people, but I don't know about you. It seems to me like we all do that rather imperfectly. And the reason we do that imperfectly is because we just don't see like God does. We have little choice, but to make determinations about things based on what we can see with our natural eyes, external things, outward appearances, but God doesn't look on those things because he has superior eyesight. What God does instead is God looks through all of that into a person's heart. Eliab was rejected as king because though he passed the outward appearance examination, God looked past that and saw his heart and he did not have the heart that God was looking for. David didn't look the part. Sure, he was a nice looking, handsome young man, the Bible says. But he still did not look the part of a king. Keep in mind, his own dad did not think of him as a possibility. But God was not looking at what Jesse looked at. God was looking at what David's own dad could not even see in him. God was looking at David's heart. God chose David to be king. A king for myself is how God describes David. And he chose David to be king because he liked what he saw in David's heart. I want to share four things that I think God saw. I believe scripture supports this. Four things that God saw when he looked at David's heart. First of all, he saw someone who realized that they were dependent upon God. So when God looked at David, he saw a heart of dependence. We're going to see this very clearly next week in the story of David and Goliath. David was willing to fight Goliath, someone that all of the other uh, uh, fighting men of Israel were unwilling to do because he knew something that all of them were not uh, very in touch with. He knew that he wasn't fighting alone. He knew that it was actually God who was fighting Goliath. David had a history of depending on God for a daily help. He, he tells a story that we'll look at next week of, of uh, tending the sheep and a lion comes and tries to attack the sheep and God gives him the strength to kill the lion and then a bear comes and he gives him the strength to, to kill the bear. David had a history of depending on God and God coming through. David was dependent upon God. David realized his need of God. In the 62nd Psalm, David writes out of this heart that God saw and approved and he writes this, find rest, O my soul, in God alone. 
My hope comes from him. He alone is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will not be shaken. My salvation and my honor depend on God. He is my mighty rock, my refuge. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your hearts to him, for God is our refuge. That was written out of David's heart, the heart that God saw and that God approved. God looked at David and he saw someone who was dependent upon him. God looked at David's heart and he also saw a heart of obedience. A heart of obedience. It is David who wrote this in the 40th Psalm. I desire to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. It is David who wrote this famous verse in the 119th Psalm. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. God looked at David's heart and he saw a heart of obedience. And we see throughout First and Second Samuel that David obeyed God in so many ways where Saul had disobeyed God. We see all kinds of evidence throughout David's life of his heart of obedience for God. But wait a minute, we say. Hold on a second, Brian. Are we, are we going to gloss over the ugly facts about David's life? No, we're not, we're not going to do that. Isn't this the same David, we say, that had sex with Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah? Someone else's wife. Isn't this the same David that was the adulterer? It is. God looked at David's heart and saw a heart of obedience. But how? Well, actually, it gets worse. I think most of you know where the story goes, but some of you might not. It gets worse. David not only had a sinful relationship with Uriah's wife, but also had Uriah killed to cover up the relationship. This is the David we're talking about. God looked at this David's heart and saw a heart of obedience so much so that he is spoken of as the man after God's own heart. How can this be? This doesn't seem to work. Well, I think the 51st Psalm gives us some insight into how it can be that an adulterer and a murderer can pass God's inspection of his heart. I mean, if this isn't blowing your mind, you're not thinking through it correctly. How can this be? How can an adulterer and a murderer be considered a man after God's own heart, which we are told about in 1 Samuel 13, 14? I'm not going to read it all, but, but the 51st Psalm is David's response after he is confronted about his sin with Bathsheba by the prophet Nathan. 
And here's some of how David responds when Nathan comes to him and confronts him with his sin. He writes things like this. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Listen to this. So that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Create in me a pure heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. Having a heart of obedience, having a heart after God, doesn't mean that a person never does wrong. And we should all let out a big sigh of relief. It doesn't mean a person never sins. There has only been one who never sinned, and that will not change between now and when Christ returns. I want you to strive for a sin-free life, but you're not going to get there. You're not going to attain it. There's only been one. What God is looking for, the best that he can find among a human race that he knows is weak are people who desire to be obedient to him, people who understand that God is just in his judgment against their sin, people who actually care when they are disobedient, and people who are quick to repent, quick to turn back to God when they have sinned. Saul and David are... Just contrasting figures in the scripture. Saul would always blame his disobedience on somebody or something else. David shows a very different heart here. He, he acknowledges that God is justified in his judgments of David's life. You can hear, I, you cannot read this 51st Psalm and not hear in them, in the words of that Psalm, the broken heart of David. He isn't flippant about what he's done. He's not casual about his sin. He is shattered. He's shattered. He pleads for forgiveness. He recognizes that he needs God to make his heart pure again. He's contrite before the Lord. He's not perfect. Far from it. He's not sinless. But his heart is toward God. It reminds me of another story in the Bible. The great apostle Peter. The, the, the first person to preach the gospel message after Christ ascended to heaven. That great man 
denied even knowing Jesus. During the most trying time of Christ's life on earth, he denied even knowing him. We should be able to agree that's a pretty big deal. And there's this great story where Christ restores Peter. And as he's doing it, he asked Peter three times, do you love me? And on the final time, Peter says something that I find so fascinating. He says to God, he says to Christ, you know all things. You know that I love you. It was an acknowledgement on Peter's part that God knew his heart. And so God did know that Peter really did loved him. Uh, love him. He, he denied even knowing Christ, but God did know his heart. Now think about this. God knew Peter loved him even though Peter denied him. Because he knew his heart. God looks on the heart. David failed miserably, but God could see his heart. And he knew that even though he failed, his was a heart of obedience. It was a heart inclined toward obedience. So when God looked at David's heart, that's what he saw. God also saw in David the heart of a servant. The 89th Psalm, God refers to him as David, my servant. Fourth thing, God looked at David's heart um, and saw a heart of integrity. Another one that we might struggle with as we think about the life of David. Here's what Psalm 78 70 through 72 say, it's a psalm of Asaph, and it says this, He chose David his servant and took him from the sheep pens. From tending the sheep, he brought him to be the shepherd of his people, Jacob of Israel, his inheritance. And David shepherded them with integrity of heart, with skillful hands, he led them. Heart of dependence, heart of obedience, a servant's heart, heart of integrity. You see, Jesse could not see all of this when he looked at his son. His judgment was clouded by a lot of other things. David was probably around 16 or so when Samuel anointed him king. And all Jesse could see was a young, inexperienced boy. He could not see what God saw about David. God chose David. Because he saw David's heart. And even though David would fail in some really big ways, God was pleased by what he saw in David's heart. What does God see when he looks at your heart? Think about it for a minute. Be honest with yourself. You might as well. Because God knows the condition of your heart, even if you're fooling yourself about the condition of your heart. Be honest. What do you think God sees when he looks past all the outward stuff and looks at your heart? We've learned today that God chose David even though he was the least likely. We've learned God did it because he has superior eyesight. And we've heard a little bit about what God saw when he looked at David's heart. Now let's take just a couple of minutes and apply this to our own lives. I think the applications are pretty clear and pretty obvious. 
Some of us here today feel as though we are the least likely, the least likely to do anything for God. If that is you, you need to know that God can and will use you. Because what might make others consider you the least likely, what might even cause you to consider yourself the least likely, is not what God is assessing you on. God is looking elsewhere. God is looking at your heart. So if you know that God is calling you to do something, don't let your feelings of insecurity stop you. If you're really convinced, or at least you have a a strong feeling that God is calling you, step out in faith. It might just be that God has seen something in you that nobody else has seen yet, including yourself. So step out. Don't let insecurity stop you from doing what God is calling you to do. Here's an important application for us today. We need to be very careful about judging others by outward appearances. We need to remember that sometimes Eliab looks like a king, but he's not fit to be king. And we need to know that sometimes the one who doesn't quite look like what we thought the king should look like is exactly the right person. And so let's not be quick to write people off. Let's not be quick to conclude that somebody can't do something that they feel God has called them to do. Bill Arnold says, we often, def- we often fail to see the God potential in others because we are so easily impressed by the wrong indicators. Let's not do that. Isaiah 53 tells us that's what the world did and continues to do to Jesus. The world rejected him and continue to reject him because they look at the wrong things. Here's what uh, 53 Isaiah says. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with grief. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. God has a special place in his heart for people who have been overlooked. People who haven't been esteemed. Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians, brothers... Think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast Before him. 
It's a common theme in the Bible that God uses the least likely to accomplish his purposes. So friends, let's not rule anyone out. Let's always remember that God might see something in somebody that we don't see because he has better eyesight than us. And here's one that didn't make it onto your outline, but I really feel like God uh, pressed this one into my spirit very strongly as I was putting this message together. Our third application, let's not harshly judge those who sin, even those who sin big time. You know, we have this scorekeeping system on sins that we that we go through, and, and that's not completely unwarranted. I mean, not all sins uh, cause the same devastation as others. They all separate us from God, but some do far more damage. But let's not harshly judge those, even those who sin big time. You know what's easy for us to do when people sin in a really dramatic way and a big time way, it's easy for us to write those people off as never having been sincere, as never having been real, as just being a big old fake. It's easy for us to do that, especially when people sin big time. But I have to tell you, church, that it's a really simplistic way to look at things. It's a very ungracious way to look at things. And what we've looked at in the Scripture would suggest to us that we're often just plain wrong when we assess people that way. David sinned as big as you can sin. You can't sin any worse than David. But his heart was after God. Peter sinned big time. I mean, friends, you don't get worse than denying Christ. But Christ knew that Peter loved him. Sin, even big time sin, does not always indicate that someone is a fake or a fraud. They might be like David and Peter, sinners on a grand scale, but with hearts that are still after God. So don't judge people harshly. Don't write people off when they sin. Don't pat yourself on the back and comfort yourself by the fact that you never did that. We do that. I've done that. List my vile sin and then say, but I've never done that. Something I perceive as worse. We've all done it. We shouldn't do that. Be gracious, be kind, knowing that God sees the person's heart. We, we need this. What I just said, we need to hear. I think this is a pretty gracious church, but we still need to hear that. And we need to hear it not just among ourselves, but toward famous Christians that we read about. I'm appalled on the internet, the things I see, of people who don't know anybody from Adam... Condemning them because of some public thing. 
some sin that became public knowledge. It's really shameful. We don't know people's hearts, and we should stop acting like we do. And finally, remember, fourth application, remember that God knows your heart. We don't know each other's heart, but God knows your heart, and God knows my heart. This can be a comfort, or this can be absolutely frightening. David sinned, but God knew his heart was inclined toward God. Peter denied Christ, but God knew Peter's heart was full of love for Christ. You may have failed miserably, but if you really do love God, God knows you do. And God knowing your heart is a great comfort to you. But you might look really impressive from what all the rest of us can see. But if your heart is different than what we can see, God sees that. God knows that. And God knowing your heart becomes a very unsettling truth. Because we can fool each other, but none of us ever fool God. Which is the case with you? If your outside looks great, but your inside doesn't pass the test, of God's knowing. You can do something about that today. You can ask God like David did to create a new heart in you. And some of us here today need to do that. Why don't you stand?